to a, a therefore in Scripture. It's always good to kind of remember uh, where you've been, uh, why the writer has bothered to include that word here now for what reason, that sort of thing. Um, by the way, if you're using you know, the Bible, if you haven't found it yet, it's page 1008. Um, but, you know, most New Testament letters have kind of two halves. They kind of they have two parts. They have sort of the indicative and the imperative. The, the what is followed by the uh, therefore now do, now be, now go. Um, and, and they never reverse those two. Uh, the imperative is grounded in the indicative, not the other way around. Um, Paul will spend, you know, generally half the letter talking about the glories and wonders of, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then say, therefore, and then you get some chapters on how that's supposed to affect your life. The writer of Hebrews does the same thing, even though this really is probably, I don't know, it's more like a sermon than a letter, but it still works. Um Nine and a half chapters of of how Jesus is better than everything else in the Old Testament. Moses, priest, prophet, word, tabernacle, you name, sacrifice, you name it. How Jesus sort of is the fulfillment, the completion of all of those things uh, under the Old Covenant. Um, and then, then he begins really at the end of 10 to give you for lack of a better word, the application part of his sermon. Um, if you remember at the end of 10, that's when he kind of reminded his readers, his congregation that, um, uh, that persecution is normal to the Christian life. And if you want evidence of that, well, here, here's chapter 11. And so now at the beginning of 12, he turns his attention uh, again, to with this, therefore, since everything we've said so far is true now, here's why this matters. Here's how this uh, plays out in your life. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, just the first two verses. Uh, and so if you would, uh, would you please stand as we read God's word together? Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that, is, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The grass withers. The flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, that you would be at work uh, in this, your word, that you have uh, inspired an unnamed writer to record for us. You have preserved for us. Would you now use them uh, for our good and for your glory uh, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ? For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, you can't help but read um, the beginning of chapter 12 and immediately think Olympics. And, and you almost wonder if that wasn't in um, uh, the writer's mind as he was writing first century. The Olympics were around. Um, this isn't an Olympic year, unfortunately, but we do have the second best 
international athletic competition going on uh, in just a, a month or so, uh, the World Cup in Qatar. Um, okay, Qatar, whatever. Um, but, but, of course, they had to go and build stadiums. They, they literally built seven new stadiums to, to host the World Cup later this year. We're hosting in 2026. This is soccer, by the way, for those of you that haven't reached that level of sanctification yet. <laughs> One day, there's still hope. Um, but, you know, I mean, you fill the stadiums with people to kind of to watch the event. This, was, this is what some of you spent half or more of your day doing yesterday. Watching events going on in the stadium. People participating in games surrounded by stands filled with people with a, a, a rather large cloud of witnesses, if you will. You read this, these two verses and you immediately sort of have the image of a stadium in your mind. And he's writing, of course, to people in the 60s-ish A.D., 30-ish years after the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. For them, their cloud of witnesses was all Old Testament saints. And, and you saw that in chapter 11. For us, that cloud is larger now. Uh, for us, that cloud includes friends and family. For us, that, cl- that cloud includes the saints that have gone before us, not just Old Testament Hebrews 11 list, but that, that, that cloud has grown. It's expanded. We now have 2,000 more years almost. You do the math. I'm not going to do it all now. Um, of, of, of believers who have, have gone before and have now joined that cloud. That is, by the way, part of the reason we just sang, yet she, talking about the church, yet she on earth hath union with God, the three in one, and... Mystic, sweet communion with those whose rest is one. What a great line. The the church is not just now. We're actually united to the saints of old. And, you know, it's tempting, I think, for us to, and you hear this all the time with athletes, especially to keep the sort of stadium theme going. They lose a family member. They lose a loved one, a parent, a grandparent that they loved dearly, maybe even a sibling. And you'll hear them talking about, but I know they're up there watching me play today. That's kind of how we think of this passage, that that really those that have gone before have gone to heaven, they've won their rest, and they're sitting there just watching you. I'm not sure that's the way the word witness is being used here. You know, there really are, are two ways that we use the word witness. One of them, and, and I'll be honest with you, I have witnessed way too many accidents on Highway 72 in the nine years that I've lived here. I'm convinced the most dangerous intersection in Athens is the Chick-fil-A Starbucks intersection. I literally made my kids go Forest to 31 and come back that way because I didn't want them turning left when they were first starting to, to drive. I didn't want them to know what's going on at this really scary intersection. Uh, I've witnessed too many. Witnessed one on Tuesday. Um, not there further back up. 
That's one way to to actually observe. We witness something when we observe something. One time, though, because I couldn't. The accident happened in the intersection at Lindsay Lane in 72, and I couldn't turn left, and I saw the whole thing, and I waited, and I, I wrote a statement for the policeman. I, I was witnessing, I was testifying to the events that happened, to the, the truthfulness, the veracity, the, the, the this, is, this is what just went down. And by giving a statement, I'm not just, a, you're, you're a witness in a, a, a trial, a courtroom. You didn't just observe the events, but now you're actually giving testimony to those events. This is what happened, and I swear this is true. I think that's the aim of Hebrews 12. Because in the context, that's the the reason the writer of Hebrews actually appeals to all of these saints of old. Not to say, hey, all of these people are watching you, but to say, look, you've endured some crazy difficult things in your life because of your relationship to Christ. So too, all of these other people that have gone before you. And that's the, that's the aim, I think, of this reference to a witness, this cloud of witnesses. They're not just simply, they're not not just observing us and what we do, but they're testifying to us. And so the question is, if they're testifying, what are they encouraging us to do? Three things. First, they encourage us to lay aside Did you notice the language in verse 1? Since we're surrounded by so great a cloud, because these people surround us, because they are there, because of all of these saints that have gone before us in Hebrews 11, let us then, like they did, lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. You know, sometimes it's... um, It's, it's a little embarrassing to watch the Olympics. They wear as little as they possibly can. It's, it's, it's still more than ancient Greece, mind you, but, but it's still too little. Right? There's a reason for that. You don't want wind. I mean, if you're trying to be the world's fastest man, if you're trying to be the world's fastest woman, you you want every advantage. You want everything, every advantage that you can gain. And so as I mean, even in the Winter Olympics, in the downhill, they're wearing skin tight aerodynamics so I can go fast. The point, of course, is to get rid of anything that might get in the way of my goal. Their diet, their exercise, the amount of sleep they get, how and when they sleep. Everything is is centered around this going fast. And, And so when it comes time to participate in their event, their whole goal is I have to get rid of everything that that slows me down. You lose the extra weight, you wear the tighter clothes. You make yourself as aerodynamic as possible. You get rid of the, the wind drag and, the, and the, the, the coefficient of friction. This is your science smartness for the day. 
They train, they prepare, they work, they get in shape, they do everything to get rid of anything that distracts, that, that slows them down, that gets in their way. That, that's the image here. Notice that the writer uses two different words. Let us lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. And so you kind of have to ask yourself, well, wait, hold on. Is our weight and sin the same thing? Are these two different things? Because he seems to be saying it's one thing, obviously, for us to get rid of sin. Right. The, the language here is athletic language to lay aside, to get rid of sin in your life. Paul uses fighting language. You, you got to love Paul. Put it to death. Like literally the image Paul uses is grab yourself a knife and drive it straight into the heart of sin. To, to steal John Owen's paraphrase of Paul, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's obvious that for the believer, we're supposed to, to put off the old man. I mean, this, this is everywhere in Scripture. But the writer seems to be saying there are weights that we sometimes carry that might not themselves be sin, but that we need to get rid of. There's a perfect illustration in Jesus' own earthly ministry. The Bible never tells us that money is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's not wrong. It's not inherently sinful to have money. Nowhere does the Bible ever say, well, if you're going to truly be a Christian, you have to get rid of all your possessions and all, you know, let your bank account go to zero, get rid of it all, um, Except for the time he talks to the rich young ruler. Who comes to him and says, look, what must I do to be saved? Well, you, you know the commandments. And Jesus rattles off the second table of the law. The commandments 5 through 10. And, and, and the rich young ruler says, well, I've, I've done all of that. Well, then go and sell your possessions. And, and he went away sad. Why? Because he loved his money. He loved his possessions. He wasn't willing to part with them. It's not inherently evil or sinful to have money unless that money distracts you from pursuing Christ. And so the writer seems to be saying that there are things in our lives that, that distract us from pursuing Christ, from growing our relationship with Jesus that in themselves aren't sin, but that you need to get rid of. Is it more holy to weigh 134 pounds instead of 135 pounds? But the sprinter wants that extra pound gone. That's kind of the, the idea here. We're called to lay aside anything that distracts us from pursuing Jesus. Anything that stands in the way, anything that, that gets in the way of, of your pursuit of holiness, your love for Christ, is a distraction, is a weight that needs to be laying aside, needs to be set aside. You and I are instructed to lay aside. We're also called to lope along. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know. 
I'm not a horse person. Um, lope to me sounds like mindless, meandering, wandering. Um, I, it's not. Uh, it's apparently more like a, a long, steady, regular stride. You kind of develop a rather rhythmic stride to your run. And you and I are called to, to lope along. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know what's interesting? Um, if you want to be crowned the world's fastest man or the world's fastest woman, um, that means you win the 100 meters at the Olympics. And as soon as Usain Bolt, as soon as whoever crosses the line, the announcers will, and there's you're the world's fastest man. You know, over the course of the two weeks, 17 days, whatever it is, of the Olympics, he will spend less than a minute on the track. All, all the heats, all the prelims, semifinals, finals, if you add it all up, he spends less than a minute on the track. I mean, he's going to win the race in 10 point something, right? Okay, so maybe he wins the early heats with an 11, right? I mean, he's on the track less than 60 seconds over the entire two, less than the miler will be for just one race. And yet... He expends all his time, all his energy, all his focus for years. And if you're Usain Bolt and you want to do it three times, 12 years of your life dedicated to 50 seconds on a track. Three times for 150 seconds, two, just over two minutes. Wait, did I do that right? Four minutes, whatever the number is. Four minutes and 10 seconds. Of your life, you give 12 years of your life to four minutes. You kind of have to ask, is that our kind of focus in our spiritual walk? I mean, we, we grumble and complain that I've got to go to church. Kids, it's time to get up. We have to go to church. That's the language we use. It's the wrong language. The, the, you're talking about people who order 12 years of their lives around four minutes. Are we ordering our lives around the pattern given to us by Christ? Are we ordering our lives around the regular, steady pattern that Christ has given to us? Because here's the thing. The Christian life isn't over in four minutes. It's not over in 12 years for most of us. It's not a sprint. There's not a quick hop on the track, run for 10 seconds and I'm done. Phew, glad that's over with. You've got to slow down. You've got, you've got to develop a long, steady, regular habit, a gait, a stride, a pace to your running to keep going. Christian faith is a, a marathon. It's, it lasts your entire lifetime. It calls for 
focus and intensity and energy. Living the Christian life isn't a short, quick sprint that's over in a matter of moments. Last week, even in in chapter 11, we saw this cloud of witnesses. We saw this list of, of saints who were ridiculed and beaten and mocked. Some were sawn in two. Some were thrown to lions. Some, some were thrown into a furnace. Um, they had all sorts of, of struggles in this life. And we could say, I mean, you know, you don't know how much harder it is today. You don't know how much darker the world's getting today. When was the last time you were in danger of being sawn in two or thrown to lions because of your relationship to Christ? When was the last time you were in danger of being used as a torch at the king's party, which is kind of about Nero time here for Hebrews 12. But this actually is also the advantage of this cloud of witnesses. They're actually crying out to you to say, The life of faith is absolutely worth it. It is the right thing to do. So press on. Let us run with endurance. Let's not quit early. Remember, that's the that's his audience. You're talking about Jewish converts to Christianity who are in danger of giving up. This is more than I can take. And so the writer says, hold on a second. There are saints that have gone before you who were in the exact same boat. They pressed on. You too lope along. These witnesses are are testifying to the truthfulness, the worthiness of Christ and living by faith in him. This passage calls us to lay aside, to lope along, and finally to look ahead. So I ran track in uh, high school. And I have this vivid memory. Um, we were running at Wilson Hall Academy. I wish Brenda was here. Um, and they had a dirt track at the time, as I recall. And I happened to be standing near the coach. The, I, I had a race coming in just a second. The girls 400 was on the track. And uh, Sally Gant was our best runner. She was great. Um, the gun goes off, they start, and as she comes out of the turn into the straightaway, she adjusted her shorts. I'm literally, I can still to this day picture her, because I've used this as a sermon illustration before, reaching down to adjust her shorts. And when she did, the girl in the lane outside of her, passed her, never gave up. That's what happens when you run. If you get distracted from the thing out there, the finish line out there, the, the, the thing you're aiming for, if you start to get distracted by yourself, the gate, the loping along, you stumble. You misstep. You slow down. Believe it or not, actually, distance runners actually work out their arms probably more than their legs because that strength, that shoulder strength, that keep your arms moving will make your legs move too. Sally got distracted. 
She became aware of her uncomfortable shorts. And so when she reached down to adjust them, she lost the race. What are you looking at? As you run the Christian life, what is it your eyes are fixed on? Are they you? Are you more aware of yourself than on Christ? Are you keenly aware of all the great things you're doing? Are you keenly aware of just how terrible and horrible and, and unworthy you are? And, and so you just slow down because, because clearly Jesus couldn't possibly love me. Both are a danger, mind you. This passage calls us, though, not to look to the witnesses. Did you notice that? You're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And they're testifying to the truthfulness of Christ. However, verse 2, look. Don't look at Adam. Don't look at Moses. Don't look at Abraham. Don't look at Daniel. Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. The founder and perfecter. The author and finisher of our faith. The passage says, lay aside these things that distract you in your walk. Lope along. Press on in the faith. And look ahead to Christ. Fix your eyes on him. Watch hurdlers. Hurdle now the one ten the, the the sprint hurdles, those hurdles are scary. Like they're scary high. Like I wouldn't do it. I'm just not interested. But hurdlers aren't looking at the hurdles when they run. They're looking at the finish line. They know where the hurdles are. They know they land one, two, three. Or land two, three, four and over. You fix your eyes on the finish line. You look to Christ. By the way, this is actually the life Jesus lived. Jesus is the author and finisher, the, the um, founder and perfecter of our faith because he actually did this already. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why was Jesus beaten and abused and mocked and spit on? Beard pulled out. Crown of thorns pressed on his head. Thrown in a tomb for three days. Why? Because he wasn't looking at the cross. He was looking at the finish line. The cross was not his finish line. He was looking ahead. Verse 2. For the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, I'm sorry, but there's nothing remotely joyful about a crucifixion. His eyes weren't fixed on the cross. He endured the cross, despised his shame, is seated at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. What's the joy set before him? You. The church. Jesus endured the cross for the sake of redeeming his people. He looked beyond the cross to the finish line and his bride. Perfect. Sanctified. Made holy. Built 
put together for him. He endured the pain and suffering and sorrow and miseries of this life. All because he looked ahead to the goal of the redemption of his people. Are you too short-sighted? Are you distracted by the things of this world? Do you lose sight of Christ because you begin to be aware of things about you or people around you? Or you take your eyes off of Christ and look to the things of this world and you panic and you fear, was that not Peter's problem? Dude actually walked on water until he looked at the water. Until he looked at the waves and the storm. On what are your eyes fixed? Set your eyes on Christ. Focus your attention on Him. Why? Because of where He is, verse 2. His work is done. Okay, he, he intercedes for us. He prays for us. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that this, the Son no longer works, right? God's, the hand of providence is still at work and the Son intercedes for us. That's all true. But His work of redemption, His work of accomplishing salvation is finished. We've, I don't need to make another big deal about sitting in the temple. We've done this more than once in the last several months. But that's exactly where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The priest gets to sit down because the priest is now a king. Because the priest rules and reigns over his creation. Because his priestly work as offering himself as our sacrifice is complete. His work has been completed now he carries on the work of completing what he's begun in you. You know, the philosophy of the world tells you that you need to look inside yourself to find the better you. This passage says, no, you need to look to Jesus to find a new you. Are you looking to Christ? Are you fixing your eyes on him? Will you lay aside sin and Weight that distracts us from our walk with Christ? Will we lope along to pressing on, encouraged by this great cloud of witnesses? And will we look ahead to Christ, to the ultimate prize, the goal of running this race, which is unmediated? I'm, technically, it's immediate, but you, we don't hear it that way. Unmediated presence with Christ forever. That's the church's hope. That's the church's goal. That's the church's glory. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this uh, redemption found in Christ and in him alone. Um, and that you have shown us saints that have gone before us who laid aside weights and sins, who loped along and who looked ahead to Christ, would you give us the grace to do just that? To fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, perfecter 
of our faith, to fix our eyes on the day when we, the church, will be made holy and united to him perfectly, fully, completely for the rest of eternity. We ask all of this in the name of Christ and for his honor and glory. Amen.